There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value. And so can you. Welcome to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you were looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen in for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hello, this is Chris Cooper and a big welcome and a very happy new year um, for those who are joining us today. Um, welcome to the Business Elevation Show. It's great to be back with you again. Just been talking to my guest, Tony. It was 2011 when this show first started, so I can't quite believe it uh, how long we've been uh, we've been going. Um, and we're going to be talking about a great subject today. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. We're talking about journey to healing with my guest, Tony McAleer. He's author of, of The Cure for Hate. Um, before I introduce you to Tony, I want to just say a big thank you to uh, well, for, to Dov Barron for interview, introducing me to Tony, um, but also to um, uh, uh, Shabana uh, Kataria, who um, I interviewed in December and we talked a lot about some um, indigenous populations and the wisdom that we can learn from them. Uh, and I had some tremendous feedback from that interview. I got so, some uh, beautiful uh, communication about it. And I really enjoyed interviewing her. And um, it was very, very thought provoking. So if you're interested, I think people are realizing today that, you know, the natural world, um, indigenous populations understood it far better than than many people today and how... Uh, the ignorance that has been shown towards those populations and towards their ancient wisdom, people are now starting to really listen as uh, the error of our ways when it comes to the environment is becoming very, very clear. So if you're interested in that, listen to the interview with Shobna Kataria. So let me tell you a little bit about my my guest today, Tony McAleer. Um, Tony is a transformative figure and he, he's journeyed from being the leader in, a, in Canada's neo-Nazi movement. Um, he's transformed today to become an international speaker and an author who's completely dedicated to combating hate. Uh, Tony co-founded the organization Life After Hate, and it assists individuals in leaving white supremacist movements. And he draws from his own really profound personal transformation. As a young man, Tony was, was deeply entrenched in hate groups. He was leading the Aryan resistance movement and engaging in activities that saw him confront the Supreme Court of Canada. But his life took a pivotal turn with the birth of his children and led him on a path of intense personal reflection and counselling. It not only transformed him, but these unique insights uh, into the psychology behind hate group participation is really challenging the road towards reintegration today into society. Uh, his book, The Cure for Hate, shares his story. It offers hope and understanding to those who are struggling with similar issues. His commitment to healing extends beyond his own experience. He actively contributes to community healing through talks and donations from his book. Um, so we're, today we're going to talk about his past experience. We're going to talk about his commitment to healing and how it extends beyond his own experience and how he's really helping us to understand the sort of psychology of hate and understand how to heal and how to cure 
this really challenging yet such a, an important um, situation. So a big welcome. Um, I'm delighted to welcome today uh, my guest, Tony McAleer. Thank you for having me, Chris. You're very, very welcome. It's um, it's it's good to speak to you, and uh, you come very highly recommended uh, to the show today. And you know, this is a topic, Tony, that we haven't covered on this show before in in yeah, thirteen, nearly thirteen years now. Um, but it is one that is so so pivotal to what is going on out there at the moment. When we need to be coming together, I think in a in a better way. Um, so maybe what we could do is start the conversation by you just sharing a bit about what life was like growing up for you and and maybe what opened up your mind to these extreme ways of thinking. Well, I grew up in an immigrant family in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, my family's from the northwest of England. I was um, born in England as well. Uh, my father was a psychiatrist and you know, emigrated with uh, with a great number of doctors that emigrated to uh, Canada in the in the late '60s, and so I grew up in a in, in a very affluent uh, neighborhood. I didn't come from a, um, an obviously broken home, and and I didn't come from poverty or anything like that, which is you know the common uh, stereotypes. I went to all boys Catholic school. I had sort of lived a, a a privileged life and and had sort of all my my material wants and needs um met and and my my father um I, I know he loved us very much was a great provider but being a psychiatrist and a workaholic i didn't see him all that much but i idolized him and um everything was good and and really until until about the age of 10 when i walked in on my father with another woman and that really rocked my my world and I went from being an A and a B student uh, at the Catholic school to being a C and a D student. And in an effort to correct my my grades, they tried lots of carrots. And when that didn't work with my uh, parents' encouragement, they resorted to the stick. And when I was 11, if I didn't get an A or a B in major tests and assignments, I was marched down the, the hall to the teacher's office and hit on the rear end with, with the meter stick. And... Yeah, I think at, at that time was my first real introduction to powerlessness and, and shame. And if I think even if I think from, from this, from this time now, um, I don't think I've ever felt more powerless than I did in that office over and over and over again. And I just want to be very clear here. I do not blame anything on my, childhood but i share things from my childhood so you understand the lens through which i made the, my choices because everything i did i chose to do and i have to accept responsibility for that but uh, i share these things so you can understand the, the lens um through which i made those those choices and when i later got involved with with uh, the punk scene and skinheads and and you know sort of street violence and things like that you know i was coming from this place of I was a smart kid. I wasn't uh, wasn't a tough kid growing up. And I remember when I first came across skinheads, I was enthralled by them because they had the one thing that I didn't have, and that was that was toughness. And when I was with them for the first time in my life, people were afraid of me, not because of me, but because of the people I was with. And and um, and I got a, a false sense of power from that. But coming from that 
baseline feeling of powerlessness that was um, intoxicating. Yeah, yeah. What a, I mean, what a story. And I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking now it's taking me to, you know, that that's um, powerlessness that you felt. It's taking me now into things like shootings in American schools. Um, you know, what's going on in those people's people's heads uh and it sounds like this um you know feelings of helplessness and feelings of being controlled and and i guess in your instance as well you know the 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 rug was pulled under your from underneath you when you saw something that you just blew your life apart really with your father and and then the response to it uh compounded it and you know i i lost uh, respect for all the authority figures in my life. So I went into re rebellion and I was angry. And that's why I got it, got drawn to the, the punk and the skinhead music scene. It was, you know, the music I was drawn to at the beginning. Um, that sort of energetic, angry, um, you know, as, a, as an outlet for what I was feeling inside. I went from listening to Elton John and Queen to The Clash and the Sex Pistols and, mm -hmm. and, that, and that whole sort of musical um genre beyond that which in its origins wasn't racist you know it was ska yeah, yeah. specials and madness and but there was another side of it though that was uh, was obviously quite racist and and as it became political in the in the 1980s um and, and me being very well read and very i was sort of intellectually a big fish in a small pond i grasped on to what was my strength and my strength wasn't fighting my strength was was my brain and and so i began reading the books and and sort of influencing the people around me and and sort of i took a very deep intellectual curiosity and in, into the ideology um and sort of went down that that whole um rabbit hole and i found a place where i could um attach my anger to yeah right and you know i think the most common misconception, I think, in, in today's society that people are drawn into these movements because of the ideology. And, yeah, I mean, yes, ideology plays a role, but the ideology is secondary. Um, people are drawn to it for a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, a sense of community, acceptance, approval. Um, and And what it draws is people who are lacking in those things. Mm. Right? And so, you know, if you think of, I'd ask your audience, think of who you were when you came into the world at the age of three or four. And I think back to who little Tony was, and he was this bright, curious, mischievous, little stubborn, little defiant, curious, sensitive, open to the world, little guy. And then, then life, life happens and we have to put on armor to protect ourselves, to protect ourselves from hurt. We have to put on masks to, be someone we're not in order to feel accepted in order in order to feel loved and and that's ultimately what i what i did if you look at um there's some been some academic research done the university of maryland has their start program which is a study of terrorism and responses to terrorism and they they studied former violent extremists and what they found was the number one correlated factor in the history of someone joining a violent extremist group is childhood trauma yeah there was some further research done that, um, you know, they were primarily looking at physical and, and 
sexual trauma, but trauma can come in an emotional way, abandonment, neglect. Those are other, those are other forms of, of, of trauma. When they, another study looked at it at sort of the same or similar population group and the average American population, 15% of the population has two or more adverse childhood events. Right. Um, in the extremist, former extremist population, 66% had four or more. Wow. And so, you know, what, what is it that these adverse childhood events do? What is it that trauma trauma does? And, and particularly to a young person, or particularly to a child, it creates, um, it, it alters how the child views himself. Right? And, and we, we build lies. You know, if, if my father can't spend time with me, it's not rationally because he's working to provide. It's because he doesn't love me. It's I'm being beaten because I'm unworthy. And we toxic shame is what we, we call that. And it's the lies we believe about ourselves because of what's what's happened to us. And it, it sort of infects our subconscious um, identity belief systems we hold about ourselves. And we, we believe at a core level. It's not at an intellectual level. It's at a deep emotional level that we're not good enough. We're not smart yeah. enough. We're, yeah. enough. we're less than we're. We're unlovable. We're weak. We're powerless. A any number of of diminishing lies that we hold about it. It's really is the alienation of of the self. It's the self loathing. When people say, you know, people who hate other people, um, they hate themselves. I never really got that until I really understood um, toxic shame. And there's a great book if you want to understand toxic shame more. It's called Healing the Shame That Binds You by John Dr. John Bradshaw. Um, so with toxic shame, we we um, we live our lives in reaction to it. So, you know, behind most perfectionists is a person who deep down inside feels deeply flawed. They're yeah. trying to prove to the world, they're trying to hide their shame from the world by projecting to be something different than they're not. Most overachievers, their their behavior is superhuman to hide the fact that they feel to compensate for that feeling of less than human and, and that feeling of being less than the way I compensated for that is I adopted an ideology that told me I was greater than. And so uh, toxic shame is the, is the dirty secret we hide from the world, but it's a dirty secret we hide from ourselves as well. And, and, you know, eating, cutting substance abuse, there's all kinds of self-harm things that we do to distract, numb, pull ourselves away from that feeling of, of being, being less than and, and, you know, there's Dr. John Bradshaw was an addictions guy said, you know, behind all you know, addiction is, is toxic shame. But if you look at people who join gangs, people who join violent extremist groups, um, there's a Dr. Gilligan, Dr. James Gilligan was a forensic psychiatrist in the U.S. penitentiary system in California. I think it was San Quentin or something. He wrote a book called Violence Reflections on a National Epidemic. And he said that, um, he wasn't aware of a serious act of violence that wasn't rooted in shame and humiliation. And he's got this great quote, all violence is an attempt to transform shame into self-esteem. Right. Ooh, powerful, powerful. So, so, I mean, what was, what was life, what was life like for you? And as a, you know, a neo-Nazi, I mean, what, what did a, what did a day entail for you? Or weekend tale for you at, at that point uh, in time. You know, at the at the early part of it, as it's I mean, it involved, the weekends involved drinking and violence, and 
you know, we had, you know, day jobs and then there was, you know, reading books and watching, watching, it was pretty dysfunctional. Yeah. These groups are not, um, they're not for the most part healthy or functional. They're dysfunctional people. I, I can't think of a single uh, romantic relationship, including my own in that whole space that wasn't toxic, that wasn't abusive in some way, whether verbally, emotionally, or, or, or physically. Um, it's impossible to have a good relationship with, uh, with another person if you can't have a good relationship with yourself. And, yeah. and everybody that I remember from that space, um, it, it was toxic, dysfunctional, full of drama. There was always egos and backstabbing. And it's, it's a very, very dysfunctional place filled with dysfunctional people. Yeah. And what what was it for you that made you you know start to shift your mindset and start or start to see that maybe there was a different way? Yeah, because the the you know the hard part for some and I'll, I'll get to answer that in a sec. But the hard part you know for someone to leave that behind, it wasn't just what I believed. It wasn't just the ideas in my head. Um, and, and most of the time people think, well, if we just, you know, educate the person on the value of immigration, you know, we can rationally change their, their, their mind because it's not, again, I, to go back to, it's not about the ideology to begin with. Hmm. The ideology is the, the, the pill you swallow in order to get that acceptance, attention, uh, approval. And, and I was getting acceptance when I felt unlovable, attention when I felt invisible and power when I felt weak. Right. So the the challenge is, is, and this is the same for so many other people. It was who I was. So getting someone to change their mind is is difficult enough. Mm. Trying to get someone to admit that who they are is wrong, not just what they believe. Yeah, it's next to impossible. And it wasn't just the what I what was in my head. It was the books I read, the music I listened to, the friends I had, the videos I watched, the clothes I wore, everything. It was my whole identity. And so we have to um, sort of approach it at a much deeper level. And that opportunity came to me um, when I was 22 and I was standing in the delivery room holding this beautiful little baby girl, terrified to death that I was going to do something wrong and, and hurt her in some way with this little fragile um, baby girl who opens her eyes for the, for the first time. And my face is the first picture, her brain. Yeah. yeah. And... I, I felt I left that delivery room a different person. I, I didn't know how. I just knew something was different. And, um, it, you know, it became very apparent to me that the life, the dysfunctional life I was living and her well-being were at odds with each other. And for the first time in my life, since I couldn't remember when, I made decisions with somebody else in mind other than myself, because up until that point, I was a complete narcissist. Um, I, I remember that moment myself with my my eldest son, and looking into my looking looking open his eyes for the first time and and seeing me and it is a it is a moment that you never ever forget and I, I you know did it flash through your mind at that time that your you know your daughter could be the way your life was heading could be visiting you in a state penitentiary or something at some point in time and. You know, was that the sort of role model that you wanted to be? 
Well, that's when I started to think about those things, because up until that point, I said, I'm going to be dead or in jail by the age of 30. At the age of 20, I said that I would be dead or in jail by the age of 30 as a white revolutionary. And I stockpiled weapons wow. and everything as, like, as the, as the rest, rest of them did. And I had a son born um, 18, 15 months later. And, you know, it's funny, funny, you said that last statement about being in the penitentiary. I was... I'd ran a racist phone line that was a subject of a human rights commission complaint in Canada, and it was um, snaking its way through through the courts. And um, you know, two days after my my son was born, um, I would I was in a in a jail cell. Uh, I got released two days later on bail with pending appeal and stuff like that. But um, there I was sitting. I actually had to run from the courthouse to to the delivery room for him to be born, and then to the courthouse in the same same day. So it's it's um, yeah, kind of surreal that you that you that you said that. But my children gave to me a wonderful opportunity and to to make that choice. And I'm not for a second suggesting that the the answer to uh, um, the challenges of the of the far right and neo Nazi groups is some Aryan fertility program to because it, it doesn't always that people don't always make the same choice. But um, I took advantage of that situation and made the choice that transformed uh, my life. And my children taught me uh, a number of things. Um, at that age, you know their their love is infectious. Like you can't, you cannot not love them back. And mm. up until that point, I was completely cut off from my feelings. I was completely cut off from my heart, operating from uh, intellect and ego and 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 narcissism. And it it was safe to love them because they're not capable of shaming. They're not capable of ridicule. They're not capable of rejection. That all comes when they're about thirteen, I think. But at that age, they're 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 safe, and and it allowed me to my heart to thought allowed me to start to feel again because I covered it with armor because I didn't mm. feel I was numb. So I didn't feel pain. And, and so I began to make that journey back from the head uh, into the, to the heart and, you know, without any comprehension or ability to even pronounce the word compassion, that's what they gave me. You know, they, when I, I saw, <clears throat> I saw, reflected back at me through their eyes, through their face, through the, the way they reacted to me. They, they saw this great, amazing, wonderful dad. And I didn't see that when I looked in the mirror. And that taught me a very powerful lesson about compassion. And when we're compassionate with someone, we hold a mirror up and allow that person to see their humanity reflected back at them when they can't see it on their own. And yeah. that was incredible gift that they, that they gave me. And you know, it was the, you know, we're, we're talking about the 1990s now. And, and um, in the 1990s, single dads were like unicorns. And, and everybody's patting me on the back. I became a single father when they were um, two and four. Uh, the mother left the country. And, and so I was raising these two children. Um, my mother helped me. Um, and, and people are patting me on the back, like, oh, my God, you know, that's, that's, that's so wonderful. You're a single dad. And you just a shout out to all the single mothers and anyone raised by a single mother um, who I guarantee you never got. Nobody ever said that to a single mother in the 1990s. 
Mm. So just God, God bless you all in the audience. I just want to honor and recognize that uh, amazing contribution that that you made. But but uh, what started to happen was single father started to become an identity. I was getting acceptance, attention, approval, but in a but in a healthy way, right? And and it, it allowed as, as my children were growing up, and particularly once the mother had left, it would my involvement in the movement and that identity was almost at complete odds with with what was best for me as my role as a single father and that's what I really had to choose between the two and I and I sort of abandoned one identity um for the other and it, so the when I when I did that I still kept the beliefs intact um but I let go of the of the leadership position and let go of doing television interviews and, and all of that to focus. And so it was really important, you know, in that that exiting the, that people find an identity to to transfer to, you know, because it's a it's a difficult, difficult process. And it was a, a lonely. You know, you have to let um let go of your whole social circle and you and yeah. all your friends, you know. And, and and the people in society aren't welcome, aren't waiting to welcome you back because you burned those bridges when you went into those groups in the in the first place. And so there's a place in the middle where you don't have a social circle. I call it the void, and it's a very sort of lonely place to uh, to be. I, I think think that word. We've got three minutes to commercial break now, but I'm thinking of the you mentioned the, that that powerful statement of toxic shame, and I can imagine that there's almost. You, 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 your friendship group, dysfunctional as they were, there must be a risk of piling on even more shame in terms of you know your ideology shifting and you moving away from those people who saw you as one of them. Yeah, because I'd been so active and and I was transitioning to raise my family. Everybody gave me a pass. No one. I never said, "Hey, you guys are idiots. I'm out of here." Okay. Um, I. I it was for me it was important to keep my beliefs intact and as our uh, mutual friend Dov said you know um i had left the movement but the movement hadn't left me yes and it it you know there's there's other steps i had to go through to sort of get rid of that but that's the the birth of my children and and the support of my mom my mom taught me a, a second very important lesson in compassion um you know, her love for me was unconditional, but her relationship with me was very conditional. I had to have her help. I could barely take care of my own life, never mind three, three lives. And she said, if you want me to babysit Saturday night, you can't be going to, to meetings. If you want me, you know, to pick them up after school while you're at work, you can't be on TV anymore and, and use that relationship and to leverage. And and the lesson I got out of, out of that is um, that, uh, compassion when it's married with healthy boundaries and consequences is a very very powerful tool in, indeed it's um that's what really makes compassion work sounded like you had uh, a good mom yeah she's still with us she's yeah uh, good a great mom great great grandmother now wow <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean i miss she must have been through quite a, quite a journey with you um but must be um feeling proud with the work you're doing now and um, we'll come on to that more uh, you know after the break you know because you really are acting as a, a an advocate to help people 
through these scenarios now and uh, and moving to a much more healthy and contributory place when it comes to society. So we're, we're going to talk um, a lot more after the break. Do join us after the break. And we'll start to look at um, you know some of the key components that are really important to help people um, leave these kind of groups and 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 combat and you know how do, how do we I'm thinking about your your wonderful mom you know how do we help young people who maybe get drawn into these groups um, how do we help them um, so we'll we'll come back lots more questions after the break and do join us in just a couple of minutes and uh, have a think as well while you listen to this interview you know what are the one or two or maybe three key points that you take away that you can maybe you know, integrate into your life and think about so that you can be somebody who helps people uh, out of this uh, this journey where, um, you know, that is attracting quite a lot of people in these uncertain times right now. So do join us in just a couple of minutes. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Are you a business owner, 1099 contractor, part-time employee, or volunteer who needs group health coverage you can actually afford? Do you know a nonprofit who would benefit from unlimited zero-cost funding? How about cost reduction, school safety, mental health wellness, and more? All these and more are fair game on finding certainty. If you want more certainty in your own life, you are not alone. Join us each Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Find your own brand of certainty and realize your personal American dream with Finding Certainty, hosted by Patrick Lang. Let's unwrap the certainty experience together. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. tuned into the business elevation show with your host chris cooper if you have a question or comment about our show please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk that's chris at chriscooper.co.uk now back to chris cooper hi this is chris cooper i'm with tony mcalear and we're talking about the the cure for hate and you know tony's incredible story and there's a, a phrase that you mentioned there that was uh was one I think was share you mentioned was our our joint friend uh, Dov Barron mentioned which uh, you left um, you left the movement but the movement hadn't left you. Uh, discuss. 
<laughs> yeah, so I, as I said, I, I, you know, was taking on this role and identity of being a single parent and, and throwing everything into, into that. And, you know, whereas, you know, my dad never came barely to my uh, soccer games. I was, I had coached my kids. I was very involved in their lives, but I still had these attitudes and beliefs because, you know, there, there was still that part of my identity and no one ever likes to admit that they're wrong. Um, so I, I reinvented myself as a financial advisor, still on one today in 2004. And, uh, you know, my best friend at the time, uh, started going to these personal development workshops. And so I started going and, and the guy who was running them, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Dov, uh, you know, I'm from around Liverpool and he's from mm -hmm. Manchester isn't he? <laughs> and Manchester and he's about 10 years older. And, you know, we bonded mm -hmm. over. Um, Monty Python and <laughs> and and uh, stuff like that and and you know so I, I did all these programs and I noticed you know that it was starting to have I, I want I did these things in order to have you know more income and more abundance and get rid of my limiting views and so it was very materialistic about it um, and so at, at the end of eight months my best friend gives me a, a gift certificate for my birthday and so I open up the envelope and. There's a gift certificate for a one-on-one -on -one counseling session with Dov. And I go, great. Who doesn't want therapy for their birthday, right? <laughs> I go to this, I go to this session with with Dov, and it's the first time I've ever gone to any kind of counseling uh, before in my life. And I'm telling them why I'm angry at my mom, and I'm telling them why I'm angry at my dad, and and you know, why I'm angry at the world. And as as you do in your in your, your first counseling session, and and I and I pause and I go, do I tell them the rest? Do I tell them about Aryan nations and skinheads and violence and Holocaust denial and all of that? And I'm really hesitant and I'm I'm looking at the floor pattern and the carpet and, and hoping it's going to sort of give me some gem of wisdom as to what to do next. And he's like, you know, mate, we're on the clock. You know, whatever it is you need to say, it's okay. It's safe here. And I'm humming and hawing and trying to, like, I'm terrified because in, in, my, in my history, in my past, the second people found out about my past, it was the end of the relationship, if not an entire social circle. So I was very much hiding from my past at this this point. And I think, like, do I want to reveal, do I want to be that vulnerable and, and expose myself to rejection? And I was really hesitant. He goes, mate, come on. It looks like you're trying to swallow three golf balls. Just let it out. And then it's sort of a great leap of faith. I, I spill the beans and tell him, about everything and, and the more i tell him the more he starts smiling and the more he starts smiling the more i'm getting annoyed i'm like here i am in my first counseling session and this guy's laughing at me i said well, what's so funny and he leans in with a big cheshire cat grin on his face and he goes you know i was born jewish right and i just i fell back in my chair and, and here here's a man who loves me loves my family wants to heal me and see the best for me and, and here i am sinking in, in flush with shame in my face into into my chair knowing that i'd once advocated for the annihilation of him and his people mm. and he looked at me and he said that's what you did that's not who you are yeah. i see you. i see little tony a little three or four year old i described at the at the beginning and with that i began uh sobbing and and began a healing journey with him that was probably over a thousand hours of one-on-one -on -one and group counseling and workshops 
running towards the pain and the wounds that I'd been running away from my entire life. And, and that receiving compassion from someone uh, who you don't feel you deserve it from is a very, very powerful, powerful, uh, even receiving compassion when you don't feel you deserve compassion at all, doesn't matter who it's from. Uh, and I just say that with the caveat that I'm not saying for a second it's the responsibility of marginalized people and people of color to take that on. It's not. But in in Dov's journey, it was it was exactly the right thing for him to do. And I know that was an empowering moment for for him as well. And you know that once I got sort of to dismantling and get, getting rid of the shame, because if we. You know, we talked about toxic shame is at the root of hatred. I truly believe the level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mere reflection of our internal disconnection to humanization. So if we want to cure that external hatred, we have to cure the internal hatred. And, yeah. and so how do, how do we, what is the antidote for toxic shame? Compassion. Toxic shame dehumanizes us and makes it possible to dehumanize others. What compassion does is rehuman. Compassion brings us rehumanization. So if we if we look at hatred through the through the lens of self dehumanization and compassion is is the antidote to toxic shame. Mm. It, it rehumanizes us, and when we can heal that inner dehumanization, the outer dehumanization stops, and it's a much more deeper, long lasting thing than just changing somebody's. Because if we just change the ideas and they're still holding on to that toxic shame, that toxic shame is, is going to spill out in some other way. So you, sometimes you see people go from uh, far right violent street activists to far left violent street activists, right? You know, the ideologies change. They're no, they're no longer fascist, but they're, they're still hitting people in the head with pieces of wood. So it's not really any, any different. Um, all sort of unresolved anger always expresses itself as violence, whether it's verbal, emotional, or, or, or physical. So after that healing journey, I'm like, wow, I've, how, do, how do I help others who are where I once was? And um, at a conference in Dublin in 2011, I met uh, five other individuals, and we co-founded um, an organization called Life After Hate. Uh, it, was, it was Google Ideas put on the Summit Against Violent Extremism in Dublin, you know, 54 former violent extremists from around the planet, you name it, it transcended geography, faith, ideology, gender, um, everything like that. And they put everyone in a room with a bunch of academics to understand how people get into and, and how people get out of these movements. And, and the stories were all the same as how people got drawn in. It was, you know, acceptance, brotherhood, community. And how they, how they left, the two, two stories just kept coming up over and over and over again. That was birth of a child and receiving compassion from someone who they um, felt they didn't deserve it from. Receiving yeah. compassion deserved it. Those were sort of two, two themes. And that's what we sort of built life after hate around. Um, so the, the six of us with the lint in our pockets and the best of intentions sort of built this this organization out i left that in the end of 2019 it's still going on to on today and it's professionalized and there's you know, social workers and psychologists and and it's really a great organization that i that i had the, the privilege to help um 
build. And I think in that time, the time I was there, we probably helped 700 people leave uh, and their families leave hate groups. Wow. Wow. And I think the, one of the most memorable, um, sticks in my mind, this email I read from a mother who wrote, and she said, you know, my son's 18. Um, he's, uh, he's neurodivergent, you know, very, very bright, but socially isolated. And he's spending, you know, five, six, seven hours a night online. And he's he's fallen in with this group of white nationalists. And it's all he, you know, all he talks about. And, and I'm really, I'm really worried. She said, what frightens me the most is they have embraced and accepted my son in a way that no one else has in, in yeah. his entire life. Yeah. She said, when he was in grade seven. When he was 12, he invited his entire class to come to his birthday party. And not one kid showed up. And you think, like, wow, the the... The loneliness, the despair, the and these groups know how to you know they'll take someone who's socially isolated like that and love bomb them and, and give them attention and acceptance and community. Um, not it's not healthy community, but you know when you've got when you have zero of those things, any any crumb will do. And and I I would put it to you that um, that child would believe the earth was flat if the flat yeah. earth got to him first and offered him that community. Yes. And, and that just sort of highlights how deeply powerful and emotional the drivers are for people um, joining. And these groups know how to exploit th those vulnerabilities. And, um, you know, when people don't have those vulnerabilities, they're not usually drawn to, the, to these groups. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. So how... Um... You, you left life, um, life after hate in 2019. H how do you see, you know, your work now? If you've written this book, The Cure for Hate, um, what is your what is your your purpose and your intention around your contribution to the world in this in this area, sort of now and moving forward? Sure. So my journey started with helping me. <laughs> yes. Started, started, started with. <laughs> me getting the sort of the healing work and then once i you know we can't begin to to heal or help others until we've healed and helped ourselves yeah as selfish as that may sound um so that was the the first step once i sort of got beyond that stuff it was like wow i gotta i gotta share what i've learned i've gotta you know how do i help people who are where i once was sort of move to the other end of this because there was no organizations to help people leave the movement when i left or the other co-founders so for the decade I spent at Life After Hate, that was all about um, building and helping others who are where I once where, where I once was, and and you know we did that over over 10, 10 years and can continue to do that. But for me, the my journey has evolved from that, and you know leaving the movement, uh, keeping the ideas. It's better than staying in the movement, keeping the ideas, but it's, you know, it's not the end point. Um, leaving the movement and, and moving beyond the ideas is great. But for me, that's not the, the end point. Now my, my journey really is taking me to going back to the communities that I've harmed and doing the work of repair and, and, and reconciliation. And to set an example um, that other people uh, can follow, you know, because we want them to do more than just leave the movement and change their ideas. We want them to uh, contribute 
back to society and, and contribute back to the communities that they've harmed. I mean, when I think back on on my life, I've got a massive karmic debt to pay. Yes. And um, and I know that the the work I've done with different communities, whether it be the the Sikh community or the Jewish community, and next month I'm going to Louisville to work with uh, uh, African American community to do this work of repair. I know it's um, you know what people share, share with me how importantly powerful and healing it it is for those people in those communities to have their their pain acknowledged and to be able to uh, have someone you know, that they can, you know, confront or say things to. And so I sort of put myself out there to have these the often not comfortable conversations yeah. with, yeah. with communities, but they're um, very cathartic interactions with, with communities. And, you know, what I've learned along the way is in, in all of the growth and, and healing that I've done, none of it's comfortable. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not going to solve this problem in the world from inside our comfort zones um so it's that's where my work is taking me and and um i was a very articulate holocaust denier um you know most of uh most of the ideology was steeped in anti-semitism and there was this jewish conspiracy to to open the doors of Im immigration was there was a cabal of, you know, an army of George Soros types that were opening the doors to immigration to, you know, all of the ills of society, whether it be, you know, through the influence of Hollywood and everything like that. Um, and, and so anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial were, were very much central to everything that we talked about. And in 2018, I had the opportunity to go to Auschwitz. And I spent 15 hours over two days with a, with a guy there and we, we filmed it. And so we created a film called Healing from Hate, Bearing Witness to Auschwitz. Um, and then we, we look at what the precursors were um, to Nazi Germany. And then we look at what's going on today. And, you know, there's, there's echoes of the past reverberating today. And if, you know, if we don't learn from history, we're, we're doomed to repeat it. And as the last of the Holocaust survivors die, you know, 66% of millennials and 41% of adults in America can't say what Auschwitz was. And it's vitally important that we remember that, that history. And so I, using my story as a platform, we, we sort of tell the story of Auschwitz and make it relevant to today for young people. Otherwise, it just gets relegated to black and white footage from the before time. Yeah. Well, it seems that you're doing very, very important work and also brave work because it would be easy for you to, as you say, not confront these kind of situations and scenarios. I mean, how, how do you keep yourself, um, how, how do you keep yourself, um, you know, with the courage up to keep on doing this? Um, what drives you? What's the, what's the, the purpose of it now well i mean going you know it's 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 about sort of being vulnerable and uh, but it's rewarding and it's healing and yeah. each time i do these things i feel lighter and um and, you know i can unburden myself from from the stuff it's you know there's always another layer of the onion uh, about ourselves and and discovering who we who we truly authentically are inside you know it's also 
combined with a with a spiritual journey. I'm not religious, but but sort of deeply spiritual and in, in yeah, understanding. You know, and, and uncovering our, our true authentic selves. And it's such a rewarding journey. I mean, you know, it's running a marathon is not a pleasurable experience, you know, but it's it's a very rewarding experience. And um, you know, the psychological, spiritual, physical benefits of doing doing this this work and and healing others and in process healing myself. Um, it's a journey that I don't ever see stopping. You know, it's, there's, there's always another, there's always another layer. And, and especially when I get a chance to see and, and hear from communities that I've harmed, um, the impact that, that I've had on them and in, in sort of on the, on the positive side. And I've gone, you know, you know, in 2018, I went back to the synagogue where I'd committed my very first anti-Semitic act in putting a national front sticker on the front door of that synagogue. 30 years later, I was in front of that congregation. Wow. It had become full, full circle. And, you know, and, and I expected people to be angry and judge me and people shook my hand and hugged me afterwards. And it was some of them with, with tears in their eyes, uh, uh, just feeling acknowledged and that, you know, you know, I said, you know, I didn't do it to you. I said this to a couple of gay men uh, because I had done some gay bashings. I said, I didn't do it to you, but somebody else probably did. You know, I, I didn't do it to you, but I did it to your community. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I mistakenly asked them for forgiveness. I don't ever do that anymore because it's not, it's not for me to, ask for um but when i did that with talking to four gay men you know three of them broke down crying and hugged me and and i saw how cathartic and they're still good friends to to this day with me and i still do a lot of work in that community um one guy couldn't that's fair enough that's that's his his journey but i really got a sense of the the impact that i can that i can have in helping heal the damage that um i and others had done to their their community so it's it's very rewarding on that that note uh, it's, it's incredible I, I used to one of my favorite tv shows many many years ago was my name is earl can i remember that one yeah. uh it was uh, it's an american show and basically he'd gone and done quite a bit of bad in his life and he wanted to rebalance the karma so the whole show was uh, about him rebalancing the karma with lots of kind of humor thrown in but it seems to me like um you know i could imagine with you a you know a tv show with you going back into the these communities and uh, uh and having these very very important important conversations um really powerful really powerful um and i just we're just just noting the time now because uh, we we're getting close to the end of the interview but um you know, what what are the the main message or takeaway that maybe you'd like to leave people with today or maybe it's the maybe it's the government i don't know but you know how do we how do we um address this this um tox, toxic shame and help to through compassion to bring people back together again sure i, I just want to say uh, just quickly as an advice to parents or loved ones dealing with someone like that um, the, the intuitive thing is to want to convince them that their position is wrong. Yes. 
And the most powerful thing you can probably do is to listen, you know, create a safe space where they can be vulnerable and, and, and listen. Yeah. I think that's, uh, you know, to quote, paraphrase Brene Brown, you know, when we can create that safe space and, and for people to be vulnerable and, and reveal themselves you know, without judgment, uh, wonderful things can happen. Because often these people have a legitimate grievance. They've attached, the solution they've attached to that grievance is completely um, wrong and, and, and sort of out there. But often there's, there's a, a real legitimate, you know, if their industry has been shut down, there, there's legitimate grievance and feeling left behind and stuff. So um, where they've gone with it is, is completely wrong. But, um, and we say never concede, never condemn. So we never, we never condemn the person for what they're saying, but we never concede our values either. And just because we listen to someone doesn't mean we accept our, 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 our values. So it's, and it's important for parents to have a really good, relationship and have that sort of environment where they can share anything with us um, so we can tell when they're starting to go sideways. If, we, if we're truly curious about um, who they are, uh, who their children are in the world, we'll notice when that starts to change. And I think it from a societal point of view, what can, what, what can I do as an individual, people ask, and I, and I think it comes down to it starts with us. And, and as human beings, we have this incredible power to inspire others for better or for worse, whether we know it or whether we're conscious of it or not. What we do gives permission for pe to people around us to do, to do likewise. And so it's really important for us to take conscious control of that power to inspire and, and be conscious of who we choose to be in every moment of every day and, and take, take a conscious choice to, are we going to inspire people to, to be be better to be more compassionate to be kind or are we going to inspire people to be judgmental angry and and, and sort of dismissive of people in, in in our society and i it really does start with us and and so i i challenge um your audience to to go out and start to incorporate um three things which i think are the most powerful things if, if we all started to live quick. by <laughs> curiosity yeah courage and compassion the three C's. If we lived our lives from those three places in inspiring others, uh, the world would be a very different place. And I know you started um, talking about indigenous wisdom. I just want to finish off with uh, an African uh, proverb. Uh, a child not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. Wow, Tony, what an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing that with us. I shall never forget the conversation. It's been very powerful. Uh, and thank you for everything you're doing to uh, to you know address the balance today. Um, so thank you. It's been been absolutely tremendous. On next week's show, we have Raj Sodia. Um, we're going to talk about Awaken: The Path to Purpose, Inner Peace, and Healing, which is his I think his sixteenth book, um, and it provide actually a beautiful bridge on from the conversation today. Um, Raj, you might know from uh, Conscious Capitalism, uh, the very famous um, book. Um, but we're going to talk about um, path to purpose, inner peace and healing, awaken, which I think you've helped us do today uh, as well, Tony. Help us to awaken to the issue and the challenges uh, when it comes to um, hate in the world. Uh, and it's wonderful to see you uh, so um, positively now helping to address the balance. So once again, thank you very much. Any questions or comments, chris at chriscooper.co.uk. And uh, quickly, is there a, a, a website link for you? Tony? Uh, 
www.thecureforhatefilm.com. Excellent. Or you can reach me at Tony at thecureforhate.com. Fantastic. Thank you very much, everybody. Do take care. Do go away and reflect and think, how can you take some of the key messages from this interview to help you contribute to a better world? See you again next week. We thank you for listening to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. 